Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of OT What's Your Focus with me, your host, Farron Money. It's been a long time since I've released an episode with a guest, I realise, and I'm really excited to introduce this guest to you today. Her name is Kim Griffin and she is currently a paediatric occupational therapist. She has many years experience as a therapist and particularly in sensory based activities with children and today we cover so much from talking about air sensory integration through to a couple of little examples of Kim's work working with children. We cover different types of occupational therapy frameworks and outcome measures and sort of unpick a little bit about where do they sit within our practice and yeah we've got a great recommendation at the end as well so I hope you enjoy the episode and let me know what you think as always get in touch and all of the recommendations that are spoken about throughout will be in the show notes so make sure that you check those out. So everyone, I've got Kim with me today. So welcome, Kim, to OT What's Your Focus. Thank you for agreeing to join us and give us your expertise today. Um, It's actually, well, it's 9 a.m. here for me, so it must just be gone 7 p.m. for Kim because we're doing this podcast from obviously the UK to Australia. So welcome, Kim. How are you doing? To be here. Um, Yeah, it is is just after 7 p.m. because I'm in North Queensland. So basically, I'm sure there'll be many, many of you, especially in the sensory world, that will know who Kim Griffin is. Um, but but basically, Kim, if we could start by telling us about yourself and, you know, what led you to train as an occupational therapist? Where did you train? Um, are you based in the UK? Are you based in Oz? All those kind of details about you. Essentially, when I was at school, I wanted to do medicine, but in when I graduated there was no undergrad medicine um option so you had to do a post you, you had to do an undergrad course first and medicine was post um postgrad so I went into OT because I attended the lecture I went to um James Cook University here in Townsville where I am at the moment it's the first year of the OT school the head was so enthusiastic and She said you could travel with it. And I thought, this sounds great. Like it's helping people. It's potentially a route to medicine and I can travel. Awesome. Sign me up. And that was, yeah, I mean, it's 20 years this year since I graduated. I actually had lunch with one of my supervisors um, who's now the head out at JCU. Um, I had lunch with her today and we were reminiscing on um, our graduation party. So I kind of, I would say I accidentally ended up in OT. I had no idea what it was. I think similar to a lot of people that end up in OT, it sort of sounds interesting and you learn along the way what it is, what it isn't, what other people think it is. And so I did my studies in Australia and then I worked in North Queensland for a couple of years before going over to the UK. And I locumed around quite a bit in the UK and went to Dublin then for two years. And I've been back in the UK since 2010, um, primarily based in West London, Buckinghamshire, uh, working in paediatrics. And again, I I was not, a lot of PEDS OTs felt that PEDS OT was their calling from the minute they started OT. And I accidentally fell into PEDS OT because it was the only job that was available where I was at the time. And 
I always felt that I needed to check out adult stuff. And when I did start doing some adult stuff, I realized very quickly um, working in ch with children. I'd done all my sensory integration training many years ago um, in the UK. And my focus for the last at least, well, my focus probably for the last 10 years has very much been that uh, autism, sensory, dyspraxia sort of group of children in private practice and working in schools and supporting EHCP provision uh, within the UK. So the EHCP is the legal document that, in, that outlines essentially the provision that children with additional needs should have. So yeah, that's my career in a bit of a nutshell, I suppose. And then five years ago, I started doing online training and resources as well. So I've sort of got that arm going at the moment as well. And I've got training for primarily parents and teachers, but I do have quite a few uh, new grad OTs and other professionals join it. And there's a load of other stuff on my website. So that's on sensory processing, fine motor skills. And I've just started uh, a handwriting program as well. So lots of yeah, lots of different bits and pieces. I've checked out your YouTube channel, which I will put all the links to in the show notes for you. And it's really impressive. Do you know what I really like about it is how they're not that long. Um, a lot of them are quite short and sweet and give you exactly what you need or want to know in a really accessible format. And obviously you've got a fantastic website as well, which I'll also link up for people that want to get involved in and have a look at on the show notes as well and all the information around the training. But what I just wanted to ask you from what you said was, so obviously you've been an OT for 20 years and you've kind of gone down that sensory path for about the past 10. Where did you um, first hear about sensory integration and how did you pick up being able to do that training 10 years ago? So I, again, I was really fortunate in my student placement. I first came across sensory integration in 2001, it would have been, in Rockhampton, which is a town in the middle of Queensland on the coast, with my supervisor at the time, who I think, Prue Watson. And she had done a load of training on sensory integration and loads of reading, and she I worked in the child development team and it was just this incredible team of professionals that were a multidisciplinary team. It's still today one of the my favorite memories of being at university that just the way that team worked and we worked really closely with the speech therapists and yeah Prue had the, the clinic there had quite a lot of sensory equipment and it was it it made sense to me from the beginning. So as I then, um, you know, was a new grad and did various bits and pieces in OT and then decided that I wanted to work more with children. And I actually started the training when I was in Dublin because I'd moved into an early intervention team and we were getting predominantly um, autistic children come through. And I knew it was something that many years earlier had just made a lot of sense. So I started my training with what was at the time the sensory integration network and it was uh, all face-to-face -face training we used to have the american lecturers come over so i was just really fortunate to be able to train under the likes of zoe Melu and roseanne schaff and uh, suzanne smith rowley and gretchen dal reeves and like all of those all of those amazing um therapists that was that years ago and I know it is quite different in the UK now they've shifted a lot of that learning online um but yeah I trained many years ago when there was more cohesion and 
uh, very much face to face. And I still, there's still people that I met on that training that I still have great relationships with, a professional relationship, so personal relationships. So yeah, it just always made sense. And I always wanted to learn more about it. Is your um, kind of sensory integration business that set up and you run that out of London or do you kind of do it when you're in Oz as well? I'm primarily in Oz, but I mean, my parents and family are still here. And because of COVID, I've just not, I've just, <laughs> for three years, I hadn't been able to go home. So I made the decision to come home and um, just spend a couple of months really I normally do six weeks a year so I just see it as catching up my six weeks in one go so at the moment I'm not doing any clinical work but the website and everything's still live and I can monitor that from here but I'll be back in the UK um I'll be back in the UK in March so so how did you find yourself suddenly setting up like a YouTube um account and doing <laughs> these videos because they're really good so that's quite a brave oh, thing to do you. I personally haven't had the courage yet to jump myself onto YouTube or kind of progress the podcast further along the line onto a YouTube channel so how have you found that what give you that inspiration I don't I don't specifically monitor or ask for feedback on the YouTube channel um I know that a lot of the YouTube videos are embedded in my website. So I think a lot of the views on things like the dyspraxia videos and the touch sensitivity and the wobble cushions and things like that, I think the traffic comes from the website and they're watching the video on the website, um, even though it is a run through YouTube. There's certain videos like the Crocodile Snap, um, which is my children's song. That That's my most viewed video. Um, it's probably over a quarter of a million now. Um, and there's a few other videos on there that I know, like the Play-Doh ones and that, they get a lot of attention. And I assume that school's watching and using them in school. Um, yeah, so it, it just depends on the video. And then there's others that are clearly less popular, but you're going to get that with any social media channel. <laughs> um, I'm not very good on Instagram. It's not my, um, yeah, Instagram is not my strength let's say it's not your platform <laughs> but twitter how about yeah. that is that one you're more with um on the page, same page with twitter do you use it much i used it an awful lot a couple of years ago i use it less at the moment purely just because of time um i kind of i focus less on the social media like because social media tends to be my last kind of thing for the day so if i've got my other jobs done and i've got a spare half an hour i'll get on social media um facebook tends to bring more interest back to the website and sort of more interest back to the training so i'd focus more on that over things like uh twitter and instagram but yeah i have i i find twitter interesting for discussions when you've got the time to sit there but you can also go into a bit of a hole <laughs> like you can oh, end gosh, up yeah. losing <laughs> <laughs> you can lose a bit of time and i i do want to get there's a couple of discussions I'd love to get on board with like there's a SEN Ascend one on Tuesdays I think and there's an I know there's an OT one but I just never I've never got it in my diary so I always miss it and I see it like the next day there's lots of great stuff that comes through on them. So you've obviously been a paediatric OT for a while now Kim and I just wondered if someone was to say oh I don't know where I'm, I'm about to graduate I don't know if I want to go into paediatrics I don't know if I want adults you know um if you were actually asked by someone to describe what the role of a paediatric occupational therapist was like how 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 would you define that can you define that basically I mean I think paediatrics is as varied as adult OT so I tend to I tend to start with the 
if I'm explaining it to someone who's not, start with the functional skills like play and riding your bike and you know, peds, OTs also do a huge amount of emotional regulation and uh, arousal type work these days. But there's also the other side of it where, you know, physical disability you're doing, I've done quite a bit of time in social care. So that's all equipment provision and housing mods and things like that. Or when I first graduated, I worked at the hospital in the pediatric units, everything from broken bones to burns to head injuries. So I think it, it really depends on which area of PZT you end up in, because obviously working in a school, you know, there's even schools, if you're in a school with physical and um, learning disabled children who have got high level of seating needs and very low communication, that's going to be completely different to if you're in a school of, children, of autistic children who are you know, completely mobile, but needing that bigger focus on play and engagement. So it yeah it's incredibly varied and i personally find it very rewarding uh supporting and helping helping the children but i also know that there's people that sort of say i just couldn't i, I couldn't work in kids because it would be too sad and depressing and i i actually find the opposite i find working with we were chatting initially you were saying you've just finished an acute stroke i personally find that older adult group or the you know head injuries of teenagers or head injuries of young young adults pediatrics and I think it's because in pediatrics you've almost got this blank slate and I can see all the potential that we can do with 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 that but I always found in uh things like particularly stroke you were almost having to mourn that loss of that life that that person had so I I always found that sadder than this sort of okay support to be successful um yeah, it's interesting though because I know that adult a lot of my friends who work in adults are just like I couldn't I couldn't do the kids. No, good answer. And you know what? I you are right. It is pretty tough. Um, stroke sort of its own entity in itself. I found sort of working there myself. And uh, yeah, it's about kind of putting out those feelers. And then I, you know, I'm such a believer. You end up where you're supposed to be, and you just sort of follow that path and try different avenues until you settle. And it sounds like obviously sensory integration and working with children has obviously been your pathway and where you've ended up but I just wondered if you would be able to talk to us a little bit more about sensory integration because it's an area that I personally am so super interested in there is this academic side of it but in real life I've seen it working so I'm I'm super interested so what it's interesting because you've done it obviously a lot longer than I've done it and you know a lot more than I know how would you actually describe what sensory integration is to the listeners especially for those who maybe don't even have a clue what the term sensory sensory integration means you know yeah so I think it, it is a very very big topic so sensory integration in terms of what we are talking about within OT was first coined by Jean Ayres and then trained as an OT and was very much working in education. And her work, if you read her blue book, um, Sensory Integration and Learning Disabilities, it is the insight she had for the time based off 
the knowledge that they had, because, you know, there was no MRI scans, like the neurology, the knowledge that they had and the insights that she was making, she used the term sensory integration because it was how is that information that's coming in organised in the brain to then produce a response? Hypothesised that there were essentially difficulties or blocks in that organisation. So things like touch um, sensitivity, for example, we would perceive as regular things. And that's what was stopping them from being able to participate in activities like messy play or putting their clothes on. And she also did a huge amount of work on the vestibular system as well and looking at how uh, the vestibular system contributes to postural awareness, ability to track and look, and also arousal and ability to attend. So she did a huge amount of work on the senses to learning. And that... That work has led to sensory integration treatment, which, and I will separate out here very clearly, sensory integration treatment from an AIRS's model and sensory strategies. So when you say joint compression, unless that's being done actively with the child facilitating it in a playful manner where you're looking for an adaptive response, I'm imagining you're probably talking about a sensory strategy rather than sensory integration treatment with the therapist. And that treatment you would see with the big therapy rooms with the swings and the big bits of equipment, the scooter boards. And, and unfortunately, in the, in the 80s and 90s, there was a huge shift um, away from that more bottom-up integration approach. And there was a lot of, there's a lot of research, and it happens today, it calls itself sensory integration that isn't actually sensory integration from an ESS perspective. And in the early, oh, I want to say early 2000s, I can't remember when it was published, but that they published a, what they called a fidelity measure that actually outlines what is air sensory integration. And in order to be classed as air sensory integration, it has to meet all of these criteria. And if it's not meeting those criteria, then it's not air sensory integration. And they did that to create more, to make the research more robust. And even though that exists, you'll still read a lot of articles that say it's a movement circuit or it's, um, it's just not sensory integration in the way that Airs described it. And you know what? I think that a lot of the time it leads to this... Um lots of grey areas and things overlapping and potentially mm. it all getting a little bit confusing. And that is definitely what I found through researching and, and sort of picking in. And obviously ASI is a trademarked thing. You know, you, mm. you can't as an OT say that you are sensory trained if you haven't, you know, fulfilled that, that training need that you mentioned earlier. So sensory integration dysfunction, as it would be called in ASA's model or sensory processing disorder, recognized diagnoses within the dsm-5 or the icd-11 so there is still that huge gray area medically in that they're not they're not formally recognized diagnoses in their own right whereas sensory reactivity is identified within the autism diagnosis now and um you know, there's huge amounts of evidence coming through and around but at the moment as it stands and not even and even though they're written on notes and they're written by gp or not gps but pediatricians will use the term they're actually not 
diagnosable conditions as such in their own right. So that adds to the confusion. And then we have Lucy Miller's team in ASI, but also adds in like listening therapies and parent coaching and other things like that. So it all of the sensory strategy stuff, like sensory diets and Wilbarger program and all of those other all of those other components. Um, so yeah, it, it is incredibly confusing. And I think it it really depends. And and there also isn't agreement within the OT community either. So you've got different therapists who've done different training, who have different perspectives on things. So it, it is it is very confusing. <laughs> it's a little bit of a minefield, isn't it? This sensory, yeah. this sensory arena. But you know what? It's interesting what you're saying about this because ultimately she was an absolute trailblazer. Like there's no doubt in my mind that she was way ahead of her time and had absolutely uncovered something so crucial and it, it formulates a huge part of our profession I believe um and it it's yeah it's just kind of wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of a graph or a table that says right this is our sensory integration this is kind of sensory diet stuff this is more wheelbarger techniques this is you know and it just sort of clarified it but even that I feel would just be an absolute um difficult challenge in itself just even trying to formulate a resource like that but it would be useful as of a table i i'm not aware of one i'm sure there is one out there that is in a textbook somewhere um i'm sure the new um bundy book and i can't remember the name of it the new s the new sensor integration book will have some sort of table in it i'm sure um i just can't think off the top of my head i've definitely done blogs that look at sensor integration versus and I think I mean for me as a clinician it's it's very simple to pull out ASI because you can look at the fidelity measure that is available in the part it, I think it's Parnham was the lead author on that um but it's it's very available I'll give you the I will send you the link and you can put it in the notes for oh, the, fantastic um, that'd be great article um so that one to me is a very simple one and essentially if it's not kind of using those principles, then you're looking at sensory strategy type stuff is not pure SI. It's using the fundamentals of sensory integration theory, taking like things like the joint compression, as you say, it is regulating because it's tapping into the proprioceptive system, which is hypothesized was regulating and calming because that dorsal column system is designed to help us to calm down rather than the protective system which goes straight into the thalamus as as that protective warning system so it all of those elements have come from therapists who've been reading as theory and been trying to pull it out into a because the challenge with asi is it, it you do need the equipment you do need the training and it's not something you can readily just say to a teacher here use this support whereas a joint compression or a weighted blanket is something that you can say to a teacher or a parent here use this strategy and it could be helpful so yeah they're, they're just they, they form different they, mm. they, they, they serve different purposes and that's really interesting and I think out of everything that's going to probably be the biggest takeaway from this podcast is that actually, you know, there are lots of different entities involved and that, that similar word of sensory um, is actually, there is an element of 
of categorizing things out but it's that accessibility of obtaining you know the, the ASI specific therapy sessions that's um I believe can be quite a big barrier because there is often a cost mm. attached to it and that's obviously inaccessible yeah it will be interesting the, the study is coming out of Cardiff um uh, Sunita, I think it's called and they have done a randomized control trial a massively funded amazing randomized control trial on using ASI compared to uh, standard practice for autistic children and it'll where the results aren't published um, yet but once those results are released it'll be found evidence to show that it makes a difference then there will need to be a shift in NHS provision in the UK if that's being shown to be a uh, a treatment that is effective a lot of the services don't provide it for two reasons firstly because the diagnosis isn't a form secondly because they perceive there is not adequate evidence to um, support its use there is definitely some pretty sound evidence within autism for SI there's less sound evidence for other um for other diagnoses but the Sunita trial will be I think that the results from that will I hope it will have a positive um, um for children's ability to access that support yeah exactly and getting that you know more of a, a standard option for parents that potentially can't afford it you know because realistically mm. the bulk of people accessing accessing this at the minute are privately funding yeah and it's not to say that the um the general understanding of sensory and the use of sensory strategies isn't helpful i mean sue allen her um she's doing her phd through reading and i know um, just her preliminary stuff is showing that just that parent increasing awareness and parent coaching around understanding the senses and understanding how they might form a foundation for certain behaviours, particularly with autistic children, that in itself is helpful for parents as well. So um, there's even less, there's even less evidence for the sensory strategy stuff, but it is uh, an easily accessible kind of option to, to, to potentially make change so um yeah I, I think the next couple of years are going to be very exciting in terms of the research that's being done and what we can then really advocate for because I know in the UK it's also trickier because the College of OTs I mean they put a position statement out a number of years ago very much saying ASI was not an evidence-based practice and whilst they sort of retracted it um <laughs> they're very much moving on a um uh, what are the word i want is a functional very much looking at that functional top-down approaches which asi whilst it's bottom up is still very functional and it does look at functional goals and we just need to articulate that more clearly mm -hmm. uh, and we need the evidence to show and it's it's very easy to have I think some of the behavioural interventions and some of the interventions, it's very easy to write goals for and it's easier to know the changes. But I think sometimes with ASI and with sensory strategies and supports, the changes you get, 
you might not have initially anticipated when you started. So it's sometimes harder to quantify the changes that you're seeing and also the changes longer term as well. So, you know, some of the behavioral interventions, yes, you do see a shift in that specific targeted behavior, but is that a functional generalizable skill that the child can then take into the world or have they just learned that one thing? So, um, yeah, and even within the OT community, there is that uh, differing of opinion, which is great. And I think we need to be challenged on it, but it, it is tricky sometimes finding the right balance between all of the opinions. Um. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we're human. We're all coming from different angles and perspectives, generally speaking, anyway. So it's, uh, yeah, the challenge is good. The challenge is good. It keeps things fresh. It keeps things moving, which I feel is really important. But it's thinking about that long-term functional improvements as as well and I like that is much harder to quantify than your really simple short goal and I mean I know I know that the use of gas goals has been very successful to sort of show show those outcomes but I I know personally from working with those families that there are just things that yeah you don't realize and the parents sometimes don't even identify as an issue because it's such a normal thing you know, I had one child who used to just pace up and down his stairs, which the parents had kind of mentioned, but through getting him more regulated, his, his pacing dropped from like an hour or so a day to five, 10 minutes. Like he'd come home, he'd do a couple of laps of the landing and then he'd be done. Um, and that sort of, that reduced over time, but they didn't really mention it until he got really unwell. And I think he was transitioning schools and it came back and his mom was like, I have no idea how I used to put up with it. Like it's how it used to be and that used to be normal, but I only now realised since he stopped doing it and he's redoing it, how like <laughs> like disruptive that was to our family as a thing. But yeah. sometimes it's hard to, she never would have quantified how disruptive it was at the time of the first bit of treatment. She was only able to quantify it a year and a half later when it, returned as a behavior so yeah I, I think that there's there's certain stuff that's just very difficult to outline at the start mm. um but so when when you're kind of when you're looking at collaborating with the young people that you work mm. with so you're obviously wanting to as we all do set really personalized goals with them mm. um I'm, I'm assuming if we're if we say for example let's take autism that can potentially be trickier if you're kind of working with the more non-verbal ones but yeah. do you actually use a particular model or framework with these young people or obviously do you tailor it to them like how would you go about collaborating with them and setting their goals for their therapy sessions with you so it really depends on the child and for a lot of the younger non-verbal children I would collaborate with their parents to set the goals rather than them because they're just I mean some of the younger kids I've worked with just don't have don't have that just don't have that capacity initially but as they um when they are able then to to contribute will get them to contribute but I'd always work with the speech therapist to figure out the best way to ask so I, I mean I, I find things like picture card sorts are really helpful to get an idea um, just you know even having a happy face and a sad face and getting the kids to sort I mean there's standardized versions with sort of the pegs and things like that but just a really simplified version 
um, of, of sort of sorting. But for the nonverbal kids, I tend to observe what their interests are and build on that and build on their ability to engage in what their interests are um, and to expand out on that as well so that they're having more experiences um, but also facilitating the regulation because particularly in autism once you start pushing and changing things and um, yeah challenging that bit more it you need to also facilitate the regulation so that you're not just making the child distressed like there's zero value in just making them distressed um, so I tend I, I tend to parents to do I like a gas gas format in terms because I find it's an easy way to um, monitor progress in terms of like how much improvement have we made have we hit our goal or have we exceeded it and I like I like that format of sort of exceeding you know making the goal or exceeding the goal I, that sits quite nicely for me yeah so I it, it really it really really depends and sometimes it's it's setting goals with teachers because I've done a lot of work in school so sometimes it's setting the goals with the teacher in terms of well, what do we need to facilitate here for that child to engage in class do you use is there sort of a framework in your mind that's your go-to framework or do you like you said you just tailor it depending on what you're doing in that moment I would tell her, I mean, because you, you mentioned goal setting. So I was thinking we're on the goal setting, but in terms of an overall framework, I would always, I would personally start with a developmental framework because with children, for me, that is, that is the underlying piece that I need to start with because if a child's not developmentally ready for something, even, you know, if they're six, but they're developmentally at more of a two-year-old level cognitively, that's going to shape my thinking of what is sort of appropriate for them and not appropriate for them um i would then layer in um i'm not even sure if that the intensive interaction and engagement is a framework as such but i would layer in that piece around where how how able are they to engage or do we need to take that step back and do the intensive interaction to facilitate that joint attention so that would be more of the green Stanley Greenspan's work and sort of the joint attention and piece like that um, and then and the sensory stuff kind of builds into there for me as well if they've got sensory needs um, and that that would be how I would sort of work up my level of needs and I'd also pull in the an awful lot of work with adopted children for a couple of years so with those kids there'd be a big piece around well where's the attachment sitting sitting as well so yeah if, if, if I was looking at kind of how I was planning my intervention or how I would kind of be after I'd heard from what the parents wanted and the kids wanted and the teachers wanted I would typically start with that developmental framework looking at that interaction communication looking at sensory and looking at but then what what are we trying to engage what participation are we trying to um, improve we've spoken a lot about SI and I'm just wondering so for our students out there and potentially for the qualifieds that have never worked in peds never considered it never even dabbled in it um, would you be able to sort of run us through for you as a occupational therapist working in paediatrics, what's kind of a typical day for you? So you've got up in the morning, you're dressed, you're ready, you've had your breakfast, you're off to work, you hit work. 
what how would that day sort of I know it's really difficult because each day is going to be so different as in any setting but if you could give us sort of a rough idea of what your day's like as a pizza tea so that people can sort of visualize it from your perspective yeah I mean it was so it's so different depending on the setting so primarily like primarily I would be in there early I would do a scoop around the teachers with that day just to make sure they'd remembered that I was on the timetable and they knew the plan um, and just to check if there was anything that I needed to be aware of that had changed with the kids and then the school that I have worked in most recently I did a huge amount of whole class sessions so I tended to have four or five classes through the day and I would predominantly go in and take because they were small it's a special school so there were groups of sort of six to eight so I would do whole class sessions on fine motor or um, regulation or I used to do a thing I call brain group which was looking at how how your brain sort of manages dysregulation and regulation but in a we had rat brain and thinking brain and how that kind of worked their decision making and what they could use as a strategy to um, help and then I often had meetings with the teachers after school which would be more of a coaching format of them asking around specific children Whereas when I worked in the private clinic, it was literally, I would have somewhere between six to eight appointments a day, sort of, I'd get there and I'd be in clinic all day and I'd have back-to-back appointments. Whereas in social mix of administration, figuring out referrals, doing triage and doing home visits and then talking to equipment reps and then doing visits with equipment reps and filling in forms to get equipment and all sorts of things like that. So it's um and you know it would be different in a hospital setting as well um it it really would depend on the setting that you're in so final question and then I promise I'll let you go you're probably going to either be one in dinner or bed or both so (laughs) I'm actually going going on I'm popping down to see a mate so I'm wondering if you would be so kind and I'm excited to see what you're going to say about this if I'm honest with you but I always ask my guests if they'll be able to recommend a book a film an article or a podcast or anything they might be able to listen to or engage with and basically just give them a little bit more insight potentially into what we're looking I've been talking about today day so what would you recommend that the listeners should catch up with oh interesting a huge amount of listening to recently is Judson Brewer who is a psychologist in the U.S. psychiatrist probably who works a lot in anxiety and um, uh, addiction Mm. and his work is it really I, I find it makes a huge amount of sense so he's done a couple of interviews Dr. Chatterjee's project podcast, um, Feel Better Live More, and they are excellent. They are excellent sessions to listen to. Him, Johnson Brewer, and Gabor Mate is the other one who I find quite fascinating in terms of they will really challenge your thinking around anxiety attachment and how that pulls into everyday function, really. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. So what was the podcast called again? I'll find the podcast. I will find the podcasts and I'll send you the links. Fantastic. And I'll add those all onto the show notes for you to all listen to as well. So yeah, it's been a fantastic, do you know what that hour has gone so fast? I feel like I've been speaking for 10 minutes, but that's a whole hour. So thank you so much for coming on. And I just know the listeners are going to really enjoy this session with you, Kim. I really enjoyed my talk with Kim today. And I particularly liked this idea of uncovering a few of the grey areas around sensory work that us as occupational therapists will do and 
actually highlighting the fact that we should be, you know, considering that it isn't a blanket option for us and there are variations within it. Uh, Kim's recommendation sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to be checking that out myself. So look in the show notes for that. I wanted to also quickly say I'm aware there were a few little dropouts of our internet signal throughout that recording so I've tried my best to edit as much of it as I could but some of it was a little bit trickier so apologies if you um, feel that the audio wasn't on point with that but it was a long distance obviously recording which in this day and age shouldn't make a difference but the internet signal did dip out on us a few times so it was a bit of a tricky one to record but the content was fantastic as I'm sure you'll agree. The idea of having a YouTube channel, having all of the options that Kim offers, you really, you know, if sensory OT is something you're considering or you're considering doing your ASI training, you know, Kim's resources are great. So check out the YouTube, look on her website, her training looks fantastic as well. I'm personally myself going to look into doing some of that. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed the show and apologies for the hiatus but things are looking very promising for the rest of this year in regards to various guests I've got lined up and yeah I've managed to make some time to bring the podcast back to you all so as always get in touch you can email me send me a tweet if you're ever interested and you're in a area of practice you're really passionate about and you want to get in touch and talk to me about it we can make it an episode so yeah let me know how you're all doing and I hope you're well and I will speak to you all soon